people were rushing around, grabbing their swords. They began to, to sharpen up their swords and to get their armor ready. They were ready for battle in this little Iraqi village, ready to go across the river and to put an end to those villagers on the other side, to, to fight for this precious treasure that was there. Well, they ended up having a peace talk that worked it out where they said, here's what we'll do. This treasure that we are, are excited about, uh, we'll just share it back and forth from either side of the river. You see, they've come to the conclusion that this box on one side of the river was what was enabling the villagers on that side of the river to have such prosperity. And the others on the other side of the river were poor and were suffering, and so they said, we need that box. Now, what was in that box? They thought that it was the coffin of Daniel the prophet. So they said, this these prophets' bones in this box are so precious, this coffin, that, that we want it on our side of the river. And so what they decided to do was to trade back and forth. And they would take the coffin and they put it on either side of the river. Well, the king heard about this and he thought, I can't have a prophet in my country whose bones are constantly being disturbed and taken from either side of the river. So he came and he said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to put the coffin in the middle of the bridge between either side. And so under his supervision, they carefully put the coffin that they assumed had Daniel's bones in the middle of the river so that they could both be as close as possible to this incredible prophet. You know that throughout history, people have looked at the prophet Daniel as this incredible superhero, this figure who who had an incredible walk with God. Now that story was told in the 12th century by a wandering traveler, and it may or may not be true. But here's some interesting facts about the book of Daniel. Uh, Josephus says this. Now, this is a Jew. Think about this. This is Judaism talking. And in Judaism, they say that he is one of the greatest prophets. We could look at Islam, and Islam also looks to Daniel as a prophet. We could look at a variety of religions, even even faiths like the Baha'i faith that you might not have heard much about, looks to Daniel for revelation and for, uh, for guidance in their lives. Martin Luther said it this way, what a splendid, great man Daniel was before both God and the world. This is the man in the Protestant Reformation who was talking about Jesus and and sola scriptura that we needed to get back to the gospel. And he said, Daniel, Daniel is a splendid, great man. And he was saying that, in fact, in the Bible, he thought Daniel should be the first book of the Bible. Isaac Newton studied Daniel also. And he said, and to reject his prophecies is to reject the Christian religion. He, he was fascinated by the time prophecies. He was fascinated by the book of Daniel. Prophets, uh, or sorry, poets and songwriters. There's been artists like Rembrandt and Michelangelo who have all taken an interest in the book of Daniel. But the most important person, I believe, who took an interest in the book of Daniel is this one. And he said, whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 referenced the book of Daniel and said, hey, whoever's going to read this, let him understand. There's special stuff here. Pay attention to what's in the book of Daniel. So I'm really excited to go with you on a little bit of a journey in the book of Daniel. 
I hope that you'll be excited about that too. I hope that you'll pull out your Bible and that you'll open up the book of Daniel during the week and that you'll be pouring over it for yourself because there's a lot of encouragement here for us. There's a, a lot here that applies to what we're going through in our world today. In fact, when you look at the stories in Daniel and you look at the prophecies in Daniel, um, there is so much that points us to Jesus and getting to know God better. But it starts off on a note that you might think, this is the last thing we need to hear in a world filled with chaos. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, you can open in your Bible or follow along on the screen. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem, that city that was in the promised land, that, that city of Zion that was, was this hope of God's people, was being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. This is a, a tragic way to start a book that people are so excited about, isn't it? Here you have God's people being taken into captivity along with some of the stuff from the temple of God itself is being taken out of the land of Israel. If you're going through a tough time in your life, you can look to Daniel and realize that there is hope for you and the things that you're going through. But before we go into the details of that, we need to take a, a little bit of a look back to say, why is this happening? What's, what set this up? Where did this come from? You see, the Babylonian Empire this time was a brand new empire. But if we go back about a hundred years, we find a fascinating story. We find that wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Now this isn't at the time of the birth of Christ. This is about 700 years before Christ was born. And they're coming from the east to Jerusalem because they saw something that happened with a star. They saw that, and, and these were Chaldeans. These were, were people from Babylon, from the area of Babylon. They came because they saw something had happened with our son. As they were uh, proficient uh, students of the stars and very, it's very well known that their mathematics, their science was, was superior to many of the nations around them. And we still look to, to some of what they have done and we still use some of it. In fact, when you think about our, our, our system of degrees, when we have 360 degrees, we can look to the Babylonian system of using sixes in order to uh, use for their mathematical system. But these men, they saw that the sun, something had happened with their sundial. It had taken 10 steps backwards. You remember that story? What had happened? Over in Israel, they heard something. They said, hey, you know why that happened? They were fascinated. They were flabbergasted that this incredible, massive event had happened. Why in the world did the sun go backwards? How did this happen? And they found out that there's a king in Israel who has been healed by his God and that somehow this star going backwards was associated with this. And they said, we've got to make this journey if you went across the desert, it was 400 miles, and I believe it was about 1,000 miles if you went around the desert in order to get to this little country and to get to this little town, this little city of Jerusalem. Well, they showed up. And there, uh, this is a, a painting of that, that moment, the way somebody imagined it. As they got there, Hezekiah had the opportunity that had been prophesied about 
From the time of Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had been told that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your descendants, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations so that the world can see who I am, so that the world can come and say, what great laws have these people? What? This is an incredible system, and we want to be a part of following this God. Well, Hezekiah had that moment to say, our God is amazing, and you can come and find him too. But you know what Hezekiah did? He said, well, hey, look at these people. I'm going to make some new friends, and I'm going to show them how much money I have. I'm going to show them all the wealth of my house. I'm going to show them all the temple treasures. I'm going to show them all of my palace and and all of my kingdom's treasures. I'm going to show them all the treasures that I have. I'm going to show them what kind of king I am. (laughs) It's kind of crazy, isn't it? But but here's the question. When, When... People think about us and our religion. Do they think about us or do they think about our God? In your experience with God, in your interactions with people, as we talk about God, do they come more to see who we are or do they come to see who God is? Well, Isaiah was pretty unhappy about this, but let's pick up the story back in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 31. This describes... uh, what took place as a result of Hezekiah choosing to display his riches, to talk about what a great king he was, to, to show all the wealth that he had. Verse 31 says, However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. What was the wonder? The, the sun had gone back, and they thought this was incredible. And they went to inquire to find out what happened. How, how in the world did this happen? God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. This is language to describe the fact that God said, okay, this is an incredible king. Hezekiah, it says, was the best king since King David. He was the most righteous. He worked all kinds of reforms. He was a faithful king. And it looked like he had it all together. It looked like he was all that Israel needed him, or that Judah needed him to be. So God said, okay, I'm going to give him this opportunity and let him show the true colors of what's going on inside of his heart. And sometimes we wonder, why am I going through this? Why does God let this come into my life? Why do I go through these difficulties? Why God, we ask? Could it be that there's something in our heart that he wants to come out? Something like Mark was talking about that needs to be healed or, or maybe it's something that he, we need to let him have out of our heart? So God allowed his heart to be revealed through this whole situation. Now notice verse 24 says this, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. So he's healed, and he's given this sign of the sun going backwards. Now notice what it goes on to say, But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown to him. He's had love lavished upon him. He's had God's grace lavished upon him. And what he should have said to those Babylonians when they came. He should have said to them, my God is my helper. My God is gracious. There's nobody like my God. And my God is a faithful judge. And if he had described this to those Babylonians, when they had gone back, the change that would have worked, it would have worked in Babylon, the difference of world history as this budding kingdom that, that came to rule the world, how might it have been different if they only knew how great Yahweh was? But instead, they went away thinking, 
this guy has got a lot of money. There's a lot of treasures there in Israel. Uh, Maybe we should go back to Jerusalem sometime. But notice what it goes on to say. The reason that he didn't repay, that he didn't respond to the love that God had lavished on him was for his heart was what? His heart was lifted up. He was filled with pride. He was excited about all of his accomplishments, all the righteousness of his life. In fact, that's how he prays to God when he asked for healing. He says, God, you know I've walked before you with a perfect heart. You know all that I've done. You know how faithful I've been. Please heal me. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 26 continues, Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. So Hezekiah thankfully responded to this moment as Isaiah came and said, Look, you've made a huge mistake. This isn't going to work out well. Thankfully, Hezekiah humbled himself. And notice what it was for, though. What was it for? For the... The pride of his heart. There's something going on inside of Hezekiah's heart. He, had the inha- he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that, notice what it says, the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now, what is this wrath all about? What does this wrath look like? Let's keep going. And, and first, let's think about this description of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14. You will take up this taunt or proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, this is, this is something that we recognize as describing Lucifer, but it's in the context of the king of Babylon. Notice what it goes on to say. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now this is the depiction of what the king of Babylon was doing in his own heart and ultimately, who was that inspired by? The first one who said that, Satan. And today, as we look at world leaders today, and we look at wars that are going on today, we look at what drives politicians, we again can say it's, it's what's going on inside of their hearts, that they're saying, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to make myself great, I will go higher, I, I, I. And while Babylon had a problem with this, God revealed that who else had a problem with it? God's people. Hezekiah, one of the most righteous kings in all of the history of Judah, had the same exact problem. Then, notice what Isaiah said to him. Then, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated unto this day shall be carried to where? Babylon. This is the first time when we're told that that they're going to be carried captive into Babylon. This young, buddy nation that At this time, the Assyrians were in power, and then the Egyptians would come into power before Nebuchadnezzar's father begins to make uh, Babylon such a powerful nation, and then finally Nebuchadnezzar. But Isaiah prophesies, saying, you're going to be carried, and your children are going to be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Of all of your treasures, that's going to go to Babylon. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Okay, I, I hate this part of the story. I mean, this is an incredibly terrible part of the story. Some of, some of your own children will no longer be able to have children. This is, this is the ultimate degradation and humiliation of your children is coming. They're going to be made eunuchs and then they're going to have to serve in the court of the king of Babylon. It's a wretched picture of what's coming. And why did it take place? It took place because 
The Babylonians said, look at this wealth. Look at these treasures. We need to keep that in mind. We can go back to Jerusalem. Now notice this from the youth instructor, May 14, 1903, describing this situation. It says, the children of Israel lived for themselves and neglected to do the special work God had appointed to them. God had had designed that they would have all of this wealth so that they could bring the nations to them, so that they could bless the people around them. That's the beginning promise to Abraham. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And because of their failure to fulfill his purpose, he permitted them to be humbled by an idolatrous nation. He allowed them to be humbled because of their own actions. Notice this, by the spirit and works of the children of Israel, the children of Israel misrepresented what? The righteousness of God's character. They should have been saying, he's gracious. They should have been saying, he's our judge. He's our help. Who's like our God? But instead, they were saying, look at our treasures. Look at our wealth. Look at all that we have become. And if we're not careful, Christianity can creep into the same things. We can say the prosperity that's taking place, the the things that are happening in America, we've got to get back to our specific Christianity that will make us prosper. But I've got news for you. The Bible doesn't reveal that there will be prosperity for Christians. It reveals that there's a coming time when we'll be persecuted, but that in the end we will have a coming king who will set us free from all of this mess and bring us to a place of prosperity forever. Now notice what it also says here. He left his people to their ways, and in the calamities that befell them, the innocent suffered with the guilty. Now, why did the calamities come upon them? It was their own ways that brought the calamities upon them. Notice what it says. If men refuse to receive the admonitions of the Lord, if they persist in walking contrary to his instructions, he cannot deliver them from the sure consequences of their own course. You know, as parents, this is hopefully the way that we want to do discipline, isn't it? You know, with your children, when they're choosing to go the wrong way, the best possible uh, way to, to deal with that is to have a consequence that aligns with the choices that they're making that will make them feel that the reason that you don't want them to go in that way is because of the pain that is resulting from that exact action. Does that make sense? For our girls, they'll they'll say, I don't want a consequence. I don't want a consequence. (laughs) Because a consequence is a result of our actions. And God, as our loving Father in heaven, Sometimes he withdraws his arms and lets us experience the results of our own actions. But notice what Jeremiah said about this Jeremiah who prophesied again and again, Babylon's coming, they're going to take us captive, and you should go with them peacefully, you should pray for the peace of Babylon. Jeremiah is given this vision of a basket of figs, and some of the figs are good and some are bad, and we're going to look at the good figs for a second. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, look. Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. Why is he sending them into the land of Chaldeans? Why is he sending them into Babylon? What was it? Did you catch it? For their own good. He he was doing it for their own good. Are you serious? Our children are going to be castrated and put into the court of Babylon, and this is going to be for their good? You see, God had a plan. 
God had a plan to fulfill His purpose of the salvation of as many as possible. And since when Babylon came to Jerusalem, they didn't receive the good news about God being gracious, about God being our good judge, about God being uh, our help, of who is this God, because they didn't receive that when they came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was sent to them. They were sent as missionaries, kind of forced missionaries. I don't know how many missionaries end up being chained and drug off. But God used this to take the light to Babylon. So, this is the introduction to Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, we again read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Babylon. He comes to Jerusalem. He besieges it. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What does it say? How did he... How did Jehoiakim get into to Babylon and into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? God gave. This makes a whole lot of sense when it says that wrath was upon them. In Romans, when it describes the wrath of God in verse 24 and 26 and 28 of, of chapter 1, it says, and God gave them over. God gave. This is how God always operates. He gives and He gives and He gives and He's giving what's best by stepping back and letting Babylon ransack Jerusalem. And He took some of the articles of the house of God which He carried into the land of Shinar to the house of His God and He brought the articles into the treasure house of His God. So at this time, it was seen if you won a war, it was because your God had defeated the other God. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying, okay, let's take the goods out of this temple, that God that can move the sun. Marduk, my God, is bigger than that. Bel is bigger than that. They called him Bel or Marduk. And so I'm going to take him to the temple of Bel, and I'm going to, in the treasure house, and archaeologists, I was reading about this, have looked at the, the, the temple that was there in Babylon, and they believe that there was a treasure house that was filled with artifacts like this from the different nations, the temples around the ancient Near East where Nebuchadnezzar had conquered kingdoms. And he brought that back. He brought the special treasures from their temples and and the amazing riches that he was able to get. And he put them into the treasure house. And people would come and they'd come to worship Marduk. And in the process of worshiping Marduk, they would pass by and say, look at how much better he is than all these other gods. And now, the one that you and I worship, Yahweh, the true God, his Holy artifacts are there in that treasure house for people to parade past on their way to worship Bel and to say, ah, Bel is bigger than Yahweh. It's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? To think that that God would go to this length in order to reach the people in Babylon. Notice what Education, page 54, says. The fact that they, the worshipers of Jehovah, were captives to Babylon, that the vessels of God's house had been placed in the temple of the gods of Babylon, that the king of Israel was himself a prisoner in the hands of the Babylonians, was boastfully cited by the victors as evidence that their religion and customs were superior to the religion and customs of the Hebrews. Obviously, our way of doing life, our religion, is far superior to the Hebrews. Under such circumstances, through the very humiliations that Israel's departure from his commandments had invited, God gave to Babylon evidence of his supremacy, of the holiness of his requirements, and of the sure result of obedience. And this testimony he gave, as alone it could be given, through those who still held fast their loyalty. You see what that's saying? 
It's saying that, that God chose to humble himself, to, to allow his goods to be put into the treasure house of the temple of Bel. He chose to, to allow people to look and say, that God isn't powerful. He chose to step down in order to reach as many as possible. Lucifer said, I will ascend. I will go higher. That's the same thing that was in the heart of the king of Babylon. That's the same thing that was in Hezekiah's heart. But there's somebody that said, I will step down. I will go lower. I will allow this humiliating thing to take place. Does it sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus took step after step, lower and lower and lower because he was crazy about you. He wanted to reach you where you were at. You see, the reality is that the way up is down. When we bend low, when we serve, when we are willing to be humiliated in order to lift somebody else up, the reality is that that is the way that will be exalted in the end. That's the way why Jesus said time and time again, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. The one who serves is the greatest among you. This is how God's kingdom works. And it's totally different than any other kingdom that has ever been established on this planet. Verse 3 continues, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So this, by this we know that Daniel and his friends were, what does it say? The master of the eunuchs. Unfortunately, they had to go through a gruesome process of castration. You think about this. These young men were about the age of 18 years old. Imagine back to when you were 18. Or, or is anybody here 18 years old? Or some of you are almost 18 and you're thinking about it? Yeah, you're thinking about, about the future, right? You're thinking about what job you're going to do. You're thinking about going to college. You're thinking about who you're going to marry. You're thinking about having a family. You're thinking about what your life is going to be like. And suddenly, this terrible kingdom comes through and takes you, rips you away from your family. Ends the possibility of you ever having a family in the future. And brings you to the court of Babylon. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. Who had ability to serve in the king's palace in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans said, we're going to teach them everything it means to be a Babylonian. We're going to teach them to be the very best possible Babylonian so that then, they, some scholars believe, so that they could send them back eventually to work in Jerusalem and to reign uh, there or so that they can have representatives there in the court of Babylon who were so immersed in the culture of Babylon, yet they would have the ties back to their home people in Judah. Verse 5, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And we'll talk more about that next week. And three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, now do you remember what I had said that I, I wished that Hezekiah had been able to say to the Babylonians when they came? How great God is, that He was gracious, that He was their help, that He was their judge, and who is like this God? Well, let me tell you, Leah and I had a hard time when it came to naming our baby. We prayed about it all the way up until the morning of having Nathan. 
In fact, we were in the shower, I was in the shower, I should say, and she was getting ready and headed in for the C-section that morning, and we're talking. And she says, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think, yeah, I think we're kind of settling in on that. I think that, I think that this is right. And for us, the, the way that it worked is, I mean, we both appreciate both factors. However, for her, she needed to like the name. Maybe you can agree, uh, appreciate that. You need to like the name if you're going to name your child that. And so I needed to have a list of names that she really liked. And what I really cared about was what that name meant. The name Nathan means gift of God. It's a Hebrew name. Nathaniel means gift of God. The, the verb Nathan, when it says that, that, that God gave, it's that verb. Nathan. God gives and gives and gives and gives. And our little Nathan, he's a gift to us. I shouldn't say, he's a little big man. And his middle name, Alexander, she liked the sound of that name, but I said, Alexander, hang on. <laughs> Is that like Alexander the Great? Like, are we telling him he's going to like go conquer the world or something? I'm not so sure that Alexander's a great name to give to a child. But then I went and I looked up the meaning, and in Greek, it means helper or defender of the people. And I said, that's brilliant. It's a gift. He's a gift from God to be a helper to the people. This is what God's people are always called to be. This is what we want to see happen for this little boy. Now today, it's a little bit harder to get that meaning out of names. But like I said, the, the, the name Nathan is literally the verb to give. So when, when, when Daniel tells us that, that the name of the, those young boys who were taken into the court were Daniel, Shadr- uh, Daniel Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, these Hebrew names had clear meanings. Let's look at those. Daniel, what does Daniel mean? It means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Can you imagine every day? Hey, Hananiah, let's... Wow, that's a cool name. God is gracious, isn't he? Every day that his name was spoken by his parents or his friends, people are thinking, Yahweh is gracious. Yeah, he really is, isn't he? He's the one that healed Hezekiah. He's the one that's done all this good to us. He's the one who is so faithful. Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who belongs to God or who is like God. Who is like God or who belongs to God. And Azariah means Yahweh helps. Can you imagine when, hey, Azariah, come over here. Oh, that's, that's right. It, literally, the, the verb Azariah uh, is, is basically from the verb help. And then the last part when you see the A-H is, is to represent the name Yahweh. And so if you understood Hebrew, when you heard that name, you would recognize Yahweh is our helper whenever his name is said. We don't always recognize that with our names today because it's not so directly tied into meaning. So verse 7 continues. And this is where it gets edgy. It says, To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. There was a time in my life where I was in high school, and there was a girl that I liked who said, you need to spell your name differently. It's spelled, my name is Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, Zachary. And I used to spell it Z-A-C-H when I put my nickname, Zach. But people would call me Zach throughout elementary school. And she's like, I'll fix that problem for you. Just spell it Z-A-C. Ah, brilliant. 
I changed it to ZAC. This isn't that type of change where it's just a little bit of a, a change in their name. It's not just to make them more familiar to the Babylonians, that they have a name that's, that's friendly to Babylonians. There's something more than that going on here. You see, Daniel means God is my judge. It, it reveals that, that and, and we look at judge as somebody not on our side, but to the Hebrews, God is your judge. He's like the judges that came to rescue Israel time and time again. God is my judge. He's on my side was changed to Belteshazzar, which uh, we know Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 8 says, I named him after my God. May Bel preserve his life. May Marduk preserve his life. And you might think, okay, well, big deal. That's, that's the main uh, Babylonian deity. But, I mean, maybe, maybe it was fine to be named after that deity. Here's a picture of the Enuma Elish that somebody uh, took what takes place in the creation of the world according to uh, when Marduk basically ascended to power. You see, the person on the left is Tiamat, and Tiamat basically, it's, it's the strangest thing, but she basically gets water, and there's this chaos that comes out of Tiamat, and then her husband ends up being the bad guy, and so everybody's going after, or they finally get somebody to go after him, but they end up killing him. These are all gods who are fighting. And then Tiamat is upset by the fact that her husband got killed, and so Even though these are her children, she sends another warrior after them trying to get them. And so finally Marduk steps up and says, I will fight Tiamat if you give me the supremacy. And so he fights Tiamat and out of killing these other gods, he created humans out of blood and bones from dead gods. Oh, and he created these humans in order to work for the gods so the gods didn't have to do the work that the humans were now doing. This is the picture of what the god Marduk or Bel was like. This is, the, this is what it framed the supreme deity as being like. He was capricious, meaning you can't trust what he is from one day to another. He was the storm god. Violent, selfish, oppressive by the fact that he invented human beings or created human beings to serve the gods. Now, If you read about him, they also say that he was benevolent. But I don't know how you combine all the things that he was doing with him being benevolent. But sometimes we try to do that with our picture of Yahweh, too. We try to add in all these other characteristics and say that's all part of his benevolence. Well, Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach was what his name was changed to, which means order of Aku, the Sumerian god of the moon. Mishael, who belongs to God or who is like God, was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. People used to look at him and when, when they say the name Mishael, they'd be like, he belongs to God or who is like this God? But now they look at him and say, Meshach, who is like Aku, the Sumerian god of the moon. Azariah means Yahweh helps, was changed to Abednego, servant of Nego, which is another name for Nabu, god of wisdom. He's, a, he's now a, not being helped by God, but he is now the servant or slave of this God, Nabu. You see this change that was taking place in shifting their names? While there, it, it wasn't as egregious as, as, as maybe some other things that were done to them, it had significance and it was designed to impact their understanding of who God is. It was designed to... to castigate their ability to witness, really, to, to um, castrate their ability to witness. 
Prophets and Kings says it this way, the king did not compel the Hebrew youth to renounce their faith in favor of idolatry, but he hoped to bring this about gradually. That's how the enemy often works in our lives. It's a gradual process. Bringing in little things that maybe don't seem like that big of a deal, that that begin to shift us in a different direction in our lives, to begin to to color our picture of what God is like and, and of what really matters. By giving them names significant of idolatry, changing their names to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar, by giving them these names, by bringing them daily in close association with idolatrous customs, and under the influence of the seductive rites of heathen worship, he hoped to induce them to renounce the religion of their nation and to unite with the worship of the Babylonians. The hope was by changing their names, they, they would begin to, to begin to be led in that direction of changing their religion. But notice, I love how the verbiage is used here in the Hebrew. I read this, uh, Jock Dukan points this out. The word here for purposed is the same verb used when it says that they appointed names of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar. The chief eunuch appoints names. Daniel's immediate response right after that, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The chief eunuch says, here, take these names, but Daniel made a decision in his heart. Our hearts mean so much. What's going on in our hearts really matter. The purpose of our hearts, the purpose of why we're living. And if anybody should have been broken, we would think it would have been Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were taken away from their families at the years of 18 of age. Who were castrated. Who were forced to learn a foreign religion. To learn a foreign culture. If anybody should have given up on the fact that God is gracious. That God is our help. That he is our righteous judge and he's on our side. That I belong to God. Maybe it should have been them. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He wouldn't let this come in to his way of thinking. He wouldn't let this color how he believed the world should operate. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 tells us this, For the love of Christ compels us. When our heart is all for Jesus, when we day by day are falling in love with Jesus, we are compelled, we are constrained, we're guided in a direction that will lead in the path of life. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And the end of the verse says, Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. We're going to look at more of that request next week. We're going to look at all that's involved, but as we begin to look at this, we see that Daniel wants for none of that to become a part of his life. He doesn't want that picture of what God is like. He wants for God to continue to be gracious. He wants for God to be recognized as the God who is his help. He wants to continue to reflect what God's righteous character is really like. Notice verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and tender love of the chief of the eunuchs. And that word there again is Natan, to give. God had given him favor and tender love. And those words, favor, that's, that's the verb kesed from the Old Testament that's used to, to express God's faithful covenant-keeping love, his steadfastness, his loving kindness, his mercy. It's such a, a beautiful word. And God had brought Daniel into that with who? You still tracking with me? The chief of the eunuchs. 
That guy who's changing his name. That guy who might have been part of the castration process. That guy who's wanting him to be filled with all of this knowledge of a heathen religion. That, that guy, he liked Daniel. Now why was this? Was this just arbitrary that God stepped in and said, okay, I'm going to make sure that this guy likes Daniel. I love how it describes it in the youth instructor. September 15, 1898, it says, they were courteous, talking about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were courteous, kind, respectful, possessing the grace of meekness and modesty, and the good behavior of these youth obtained favor for them. Just as they were carried off into Babylon because of their refusal to represent God's righteous character, because of their, their foray into idolatry themselves, their pride, in the same way, as they're in Babylon and they begin to represent the humble, loving character of God, they're brought into favor. He goes on to say, uh, well, later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, describing God's people in the end, I believe it, it applies throughout all of history. It says this, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. When we know that God is gracious, when we know that He's our help, when we know that we belong to God, that there is no God like our God, and when we know that He's our judge, our deliverer, that He's on our side, we will become strong and carry out great exploits. What do those look like? It looks like going and becoming friends with the very people who have carried you into bondage, who have taken away your future hope of having children, who have mistreated you in so many ways and who are trying to do everything possible to brainwash you and treating them with love and graciousness and kindness. There is no strength stronger than that. Do you think meekness is weakness? Try being meek for a week. Education, page 56, says, In them, and actually this is talking about Daniel and Joseph, uh, but this, this, this is specifically in Daniel. A heathen people and all the nations with which they were connected beheld an illustration of the goodness and beneficence of God. An illustration of the love of Christ. <laughs> Hezekiah, for all of his goodness, all that he did, he dropped the football at the time when it mattered most. Babylon came and he could have displayed to them, this is what God is like. He's a beneficent God. He's a good God. He's gracious. He dropped the ball. So God sent young people, 18 years old, into Babylon and said, these guys, these guys can get it done. They can show Babylon what it's all about. They can show a beautiful picture of who God really is. Well, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff. Now, this past week, I mean, we need, we need to let the rubber meet the road, right? If we're going to study the book of Daniel, we need to not just think about good thoughts about this guy a long time ago, but I need it to impact my life. I need it to change me. Well, this week, I got an email conversation with somebody. That nobody that attends this church. In fact, nobody that lives in this community. Somebody that lives a ways away from here. And I thought I was being pretty gracious with this person. They've, they've said some troubling things to me. And I was asking some questions, and, and I thought it was pretty gracious. And they asked some questions back that were trying to kind of pull out any baggage from me and my leadership of 
of our church. And then all of a sudden he says, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And he goes on this long berating email and tells me all of the reasons that he would never be a member of my church, that he would go to any other possible church. And then he finally said, and you're like a dumb dog that can't bark when you preach. And and I told Leah, I was like, I don't even know what to do with this email I just got. I'm just going to send it to you. And she's sitting there reading this. She's like, I can't believe this. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Now, to give the guy a benefit of the doubt, at the end, he said, that whole dumb dog thing, it doesn't really, don't take that personally. Let's be friends. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, I'll just drop that one. Dumb dog. I was frustrated. I don't know if you know how it feels when your heart's pumping. <laughs> You're angry. And I was thinking of all the ways I was going to line this guy out. I was thinking, look, he's wrong on this point. He's wrong on that point. I can't wait to tell him this. I can't wait to tell him that. I'm going to write him the email of emails, and he will, he's going to melt when I send him this email. I can't wait to humble this guy. And then my precious little wife, she's like, well, you know, you better be really gracious to him. Gracious? He just called me a dumb dog. You serious? Be gracious to him? Come on. But I've learned from living 15 years with this amazing woman that she's got a lot of wisdom. And I began to pray about it. And that night, periodically being up in the night with Nathan, I was praying about it. And in the morning, I began to read my Bible. And I, I wasn't immediately tying in what I was reading. But here's the thing. If we want to know our God and to do great exploits, what we learned from Pastor Lee Venden about taking time at the feet of Jesus, that's where it happens. If we want our hearts to be able to purpose to not defile ourselves, it takes place at the feet of Jesus in our time alone with God. So I was reading through my Bible plan for that day. It was the next, the next day's reading. I'm going through and I get to Proverbs. And I'm reading through Proverbs and suddenly God's slapping me upside the head. He says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Okay, maybe I should listen to my wife. And maybe I should listen to this guy too because he probably had some good points even though I didn't like the way he made them. Then I kept reading. Sometimes it's hard to keep reading when your Bible starts talking to you like this. A fool shows his annoyance at once, <laughs> but a prudent man overlooks an insult. You mean I can't write back and say, are you serious? You just call me a dumb dog? Okay. A prudent man overlooks an insult. Verse 18, there is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword. And I wanted to say, yeah, that's him. That's, that's exactly what he's doing. And that's what we tend to do when we read the Bible. We point at everybody else. But I suddenly realized, what email was I going to write back to this guy? What was going to come off of my tongue? But the tongue of the wise promotes healing. I began to say, okay, God. What can I write back that will bring healing? And you've got to pray for me because I haven't written the email yet. <laughs> but I want him to know that God is gracious. I want him to know that God is his judge in a good way. I want him to know that God is on his side. That there's no one like our God. That he's faithful. That he loves him. And that can only be represented as I treat him with courteousness and graciousness. This invites you to bow your head with me. And maybe just to ask God, God, what do you want to do in my own heart? Thank you for 
Maybe you can thank him for the story that Mark shared and, and how God took out the pain in his life. And maybe there's some pain in your heart that you want him to take out this morning. Or maybe, maybe there's somebody frustrating you and you need God to give you love for that person. I don't know what it is, but in the silence of your own heart, just have a heart-to-heart with God and let him do a little work, a little heart surgery on your heart just now. Father, we need this to simply be still and know our God. And if there's anybody else like me, I need a lot more time like this. I need to realize a whole lot more that I am a dumb dog. That but for the grace of God, I can't share something that's going to change anybody. Father, I pray that our hearts would be melted, they'd be softened that we would purpose in our hearts, that we would not defile ourselves with the riffraff, the stuff that's going on in the world, the tick for tat, the, the things that aren't representing your character. Father, change my heart, change our hearts. May we reflect your heart. And may we tell the world that our God is gracious. Our God's our help. We belong to God. That's our identity. And our God... He is our judge. He's on our side. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.